Welcome back, everybody, to the second part of our Susan Reinhardt case. We're really excited to have you back. Thank you so much for listening to part one. If you haven't, you really should, because if not, this is not going to make any sense to you whatsoever. That is correct. (laughs) So if you haven't, please do so. Stop this now. Go back and listen to part one and then come back here for part two. So just a brief recap where we left off in part one. A female body has been found naked in the trunk of a car in the Host Inn parking lot outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Jack Holtz, a criminal investigator with the Pennsylvania State Police of Troop H out of Harrisburg, arrived on scene about two hours after the body was discovered. He noted that the hatchback was parked in the third row, a few spaces east of the main entrance to the host inn. He believed that this Larry Brown, who had called in that a woman was sick in the parking lot, had most likely left the hatchback open and had done so to bring attention to the body. So they needed this body to be found that day. Yeah. So the victim had abrasions and bruises on both of her forearms. There was dried blood around her nose and mouth. Her right eye was discolored and bruised. There were abrasions found on both knees, behind the neck, and on both ankles. And there were also bruises on the buttocks and in between the shoulder blades. Now, no clothing, purse, or keys were found with the body. And the car looked to have been wiped down on the outside and on the inside driver's side. And the rearview mirror was missing. The car was registered to Susan Reinhardt from Ardmore, PA, and the assumption was that this was the body until a formal ID could be made. The items found in the car included a pamphlet from the First Presbyterian Church of Ardmore, a deck of playing cards, some soft drink containers, hamburger wrappers, Cub Scout pamphlets, roadmap, hairbrush, some candy wrappers, a matchbook from a Carlisle motel, a girl's barrette, and three stuffed animals, a lion, a duck, and a monkey. Nothing that you really would not expect to find in a family car or a car with a family that has children. That's the worst, the stuffed animals. Yeah. Like when you find a body in a car, at this point, are assuming that it's Susan, we still don't know where these kids are. Correct. But what you wouldn't expect to find was a rubber dildo that was found under the front driver's seat. Now, beneath the body in the trunk was found a brand new blue comb with the inscription of 79th USARCOM, which stood for 79th United States Army Reserve Company. And also beneath the victim's body was a green plastic bag. Now, elsewhere at this time in Harrisburg, Jay Smith was being sentenced on his robbery, weapons, drugs, and stolen property charges. And he was 20 minutes late arriving for court that day. He claimed that he was waiting on a ride that had never shown up for him. So Jay Smith ended up being sentenced to two to five years in a state correctional facility. And upon leaving the courtroom, he tossed his keys to his attorney and said, make sure this gets back to my brother. So by then, the body had been moved to the Dauphin County Coroner's Office. And depending on what article you read, it was either conducted by William Bush or Robert Baer. And this is the same coroner office. So they have, is it Graham Hetrick? Yeah. And he has that show, right? He has I Speak for the Dead on Discovery ID, and he is the current Dauphin County Coroner. But again, this was in... Yeah, this was in the late 70s. He wasn't he wasn't the coroner. Although then. he's not a young man. He may have been a coroner at this time. No, I have no clue about his career. He might have been, but he's not mentioned in any article I read in terms of, of conducting the autopsy on this Maybe body. Maybe he was like an assistant, Maybe. like an assistant coroner. Maybe. We should try and get some insights from him. We should. And he might be like, 
No, I wasn't the coroner. <laughs> I didn't work there. <laughs> what the coroner did find was a white sticky substance, probably from adhesive tape stuck to her mouth and hair and around her nose. There also was the absence of rigor and postmortem lividity, producing this bluish discoloration where the blood had settled. Now, rigidity from rigor mortis lasts about 24 hours. What the coroner also discovered was fixed lividity on the front and back, indicating that she had lain for about eight hours on each side after her death, meaning she was not killed right away, and she had died 24 to 36 hours after her beating. There were no signs of needle marks, though that could have been missed due to the number of contusions on her body. The coroner made a ballpark guess that she had died late Saturday evening or early Sunday morning. And the coroner then stated that the cause of death was due to asphyxiation. But that wasn't really laid out in cement until the toxicology reports came back. And when they did, they showed that she actually died of a morphine overdose. Now, Ken Reinhardt was contacted and asked to come to Harrisburg to identify the body. And he did so and had identified the body as belonging to his ex-wife, Susan Reinhardt. Then he threw the investigators for a loop when he asked where the kids were. This is the first time the police found out that there were missing children involved. So as an ex-husband, Ken was on the suspect list, but was eventually cleared. Now on Tuesday, June 26, Sharon Lee, a friend and co-worker of Susan Reinhardt's, reached out to Bill Bradfield once she heard the news. Now Bill at this time was in New Mexico. He had flown out with Chris Pappas Monday, while Joanna Aiken had drove his VW Bug to Santa Fe, New Mexico because that's where him and Chris were taking these summer classes. So Sharon asked him when he planned to see Susan again, and Bill told her at the start of the school year. And this shocked Sharon. She had talked to Susan about her and Bill moving to England and getting married. Now, Bill denied this, stating, well, Susan may have been pursuing me, but I wasn't interested. She asked him if he knew who was taking care of the children, and Bill played it off like he didn't know even how old the children were, stating, oh, yes. How old were the children? Now, Sharon knew he was pretending not to know as she had been at Susan Reinhardt's house one day when Bill had stopped by unexpectedly, and he had been talking with Karen about a present he had given her. After she hung up the phone, she realized that Bill Bradfield spoke of the children in the past tense. So police realized that the murder didn't seem to have anything to do with the Harrisburg area. That was only where the body was left. So they focused more on the King of Prussia area where Susan had lived and worked. So through their investigation, they had heard about the fight in the faculty lounge. So one of their first stops was Sue Myers. Sue was at home at the time in her apartment with Vince Velatis as he lived in the same apartment building as her. And she told the cops that they had all left for Cape May around 4 p.m. on Friday, June 22nd. Now, if we'll remember, they didn't really leave till closer to midnight. So Vince was also questioned and repeated the same statement that Sue made about leaving around 4 p.m. And he also told the police that they're wrong in thinking of any of them would have anything to do with hurting Susan and that she could have easily gotten herself killed because of all the crazy sex she was having with strange men, this being the story that Bill Bradfield had told him. Now, the cops didn't really find Vince believable because he couldn't even look them in the eye when they were speaking to him. So the police next went to retrieve the dispatch call that Larry Brown had made, but they ran into a problem that would actually lead to bigger problems. When they arrived, they were told, well, you need a court order. So they got a court order. When they got the tape, they found that it had been recorded over, as apparently at the time there was a shortage of tape, so they reused it, and that evidence is lost to them. The second problem they would run into was when the autopsy was completed on Monday, June 25th, her body was released to the funeral home 
on Tuesday. And the police told the funeral home that they did not want Susan's body cremated. But Susan Reinhardt's brother had requested cremation, thinking the police were done with it. And he wasn't told about their request. So her body was cremated on Wednesday, June 27th. So now they have no tape from the person who called in to say, hey, this woman is sick, when obviously she was not. And now they have no more body. Which they did complete an autopsy, but as far as forensics... They did. I think the police were looking for to arrange for a more experienced forensic pathologist to come in and do an autopsy, too, in addition to what the coroner did. But that avenue got close to them when her body was cremated. And I'm just wondering, when you think about Sue Myers and Vince telling these lies to the police, like, at what moment do you think they were like, "Uh uh-oh, where this kind of became real? Because for so long, they had been kind of manipulated into thinking that Jay Smith is going to kill Susan. So I'm wondering what kind of story did Bill have to feed to them to say, well, you have to tell them that we left at four o'clock. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I agree. I think they start to get a clue. Like when did it become real for them? Even if before it's just stories, like this is the point where no, now we have someone who's actually been killed right and they're still spinning this same story i think as the investigation goes on and the police turn up the heat in the questioning they start to get a little more of a clue so the cops had gone out to new mexico to talk to bill and chris pappas and when they arrived bill told them on the advice of his counsel not to answer any questions and if they wanted to they could write down their questions and submit it to his attorney so the police next tried to talk to chris and bill interceded saying well his attorney and my attorney are the same one by july police began to think that all of the kate may group had conspired to murder susan reinhardt for the insurance money this had come out in the investigation that she had multiple policies and it also broke in the news after returning from new mexico chris pappas started to get a clue about saving his own neck because he had read about in the news that susan not being able to withdraw the twenty five thousand dollars in one shot and then bill suddenly having this twenty eight thousand dollar life savings that might actually be susan's money At this point, the FBI had entered the picture upon the pretext that the children had possibly been kidnapped. So the FBI really focused their attention on the J. Smith connection because of the blue comb found beneath Susan's body because he was a colonel with the 79th Army Reserve Unit. But the Pennsylvania State Police felt that Bill Bradfield was really responsible for this, describing him as a hugger-mugger. Now, I had never heard that term, hugger-mugger, but what it means is the kind of person that picks on plain or homely women turns on the charm and gives them some cuddles while picking their purses. So at this time, rumors were flying about the murder. A co-worker of Stephanie Smith, the mother, not the daughter, had somehow gotten a hold of Stephanie's diary and had given it to the press. And it had a lot of salacious information in it on sex rings and swinger parties. One headline read, sex ring linked to murder, swingers group probed. The rumor was that Susan Reinhardt had knowledge of this love cult and may have been the motive for her murder. Another rumor was that Jay Smith was a cult member and this cult was made up of intellectual professionals worshiping Satan and Susan had been sacrificed. Now, the children were also cited apparently all over the eastern half of the United States, but none of them turned out to be true. One rumor was that the children were living with Stephanie and Eddie Hunsberger. But remember, Stephanie and Eddie haven't been seen since they disappeared in February of 78. Right. And again, so they disappeared. Jay Smith gets phone calls saying, well, no, they moved to California and then is still cashing their welfare checks once they've disappeared. 
Yes. A task force made up of the FBI and the Pennsylvania State Police came together and they searched Susan Reinhardt's home and they found a deposit slip of $30,000 in December of 1978. Now, this was part of her inheritance. Then there were a series of withdrawals adding up to $25,000, and the money was shown to have been shuffled between various banks. They also found a credit memo dated February 24, 1979, that stated that Susan Gallagher Reinhardt owned 25% of a $100,000 certificate that drew 12% interest plus or minus and would pay in about six months. August of 1979. This transaction was handled by Bausch and Company, a reputable security firm out of Philadelphia. Now, the police discovered from a phone call that this company didn't have an employee that handled this transaction, and they had never heard of Susan Reinhardt. They also found out a week before Susan's death, Susan had told a friend she was never going to marry Bill Bradfield because he kept canceling appointments she had set up with an attorney. Now, two days later, she called back this same friend and said everything was smoothed out. She told the friend that she wouldn't be able to contact her anymore, stating getting close to the time that Sue Myers might do something. So what was Bill telling? Susan Reinhardt that Sue Myers wanted to kill her and he was trying to stop that from happening while he was telling everyone else that Bill Smith wanted to kill Susan and he was trying to stop that from happening. So it sounds to me like it's the same story, just different actors. So at one point, Vince Villatis confessed to a priest all he had been told by Bill Bradfield over the years. By the end of his story, the priest told him, you need to call the police. <laughs> you need Which to is, come clean. That's hilarious. I don't think I've ever heard of a priest being like, no, you should really just call the police. Like, like no Hail Marys. Oh, there no. might have been. But the <laughs> priest is also saying, yeah, this isn't something you can sit on. And a couple Hail Marys isn't going to let Fix this go. This, yeah. Right. So the task force interviewed Vince and he would end up giving them nearly 100 hours of his time telling them everything they wanted to know, or at least what he knew. Now, Bill also contacted the task force, wanting to set the record straight. He was unaware, though, that Vince had already been talking to them. So they arranged a meeting at the Howard Johnson restaurant in King of Prussia, and at this meeting, Bill arrived with Sue Myers and Vince Villatis in tow. Bill said that he was surprised at being named in Susan Will and on her life insurance policy, and what he really wanted to do was put up a reward for the children's safe return, but on the advice of his counsel, he was told not to. He also told the task force he was starting to believe that Jay Smith was probably the actual killer. Now, Vince had been telling the task force about a letter Bill had received at work one day with a note that said, please come see me, signed Deidre Paxton. Bill said it was from Jay Smith and that he borrowed Vince's car and left campus for about 45 minutes. He also told them about the convoluted phone system that Bill and Jay had set up. Now, the task force decided to go to the federal grand jury, which was in session at Philadelphia at this time, so that they could subpoena phone records, credit card information, and bank records of Jay Smith, Bill Bradfield, and all of Bill's friends. Vince Villatis testified to the grand jury, and when he got done, one of the jurors asked him a question that I would have loved to ask him at the time, and that was, why didn't he warn Susan Reinhardt? And his reply was, quote, I just did not want to deal with it, unquote. I know, let that sit and stir a while. I can't even, like, so, can't even. I know. 
So around the same time, parents and community members of Upper Marion School District demanded that these teachers, Bill Bradfield, Sue Myers, Vince Villatis, be fired. And this was due to news coverage at the time. And that was back before 24-hour news stations and internet. I mean, but it was in every newspaper every day. But the district couldn't legally fire them because they weren't really charged and they mm. weren't didn't go to court and found guilty. So what they did is they removed them from direct contact with students and signed them to non-teaching duties, which was basically showing up at an off-campus building and sitting in the basement and doing busy work. Through the investigation, the FBI, who were focusing on Jay Smith, found out that he was late to a sentencing hearing on June 25th, again, claiming that a friend that was supposed to give him a ride at the last minute was unable to do so. The FBI contacted this friend who reported that, well, Jay Smith had contacted him earlier in the weekend, but he never mentioned needing a ride. They also looked at Jay Smith's phone records, and they saw that he had called his attorney Friday afternoon around 3.50 and then called him again Sunday night around 8.37 p.m. Now, at the time, the task force didn't know about the two men who had seen Susan's car in the host Inn parking lot on Sunday evening around 7. And that's going to come into play later why that's important. The FBI also checked into Jay Smith's whereabouts and alibis that weekend, but they couldn't find anybody who had seen Jay Smith from Friday until late Sunday evening on June 24th. Now, the task force theory was that Susan had been called away from her home suddenly, and when she and the kids arrived at some destination, they were met by one or more persons because they felt that it would take two people to control three of them. Because it was Susan, it was Karen who was 11, and Michael who was 10. Susan was beaten, her mouth taped over, and she was put in chains that were so tight they left indentations around her body. They believed that she was kept alive for some time before she was murdered so that the killers could establish their alibi. From the pictures taken of Susan in the trunk of her car, they were able to determine that the length size of the chains appeared to match the chains found in Jay Smith's basement. So the theory of being lured was bolstered by information from a friend at Parents Without Partners. This friend claimed that Susan told them that she was going to meet with an attorney on Saturday, June 23rd to sort out legal matters with Bill Bradfield. The police felt that Susan had gotten a call from Bill saying that they needed to meet with the attorney right away and to also bring along her copy of the will. And remember that same night she did also call because she was supposed to do like a, a presentation or something yes. Saturday morning and she called Friday afternoon evening Yes, and said that she wouldn't be able to make it. So right. there had something to be had come something up. that had come up. That she suddenly changed her plans. Yeah. So in 1980 Bill Bradfield attempted to probate the estate of, of Susan Reinhardt but as soon as he filed, Ken Reinhardt and also Pat Gallagher filed to block him. So this case was held in the Orphan's Court in the Court of Common Pleas in Delaware County. So a hearing was held where Bill Bradfield testified under oath that he never dated Susan Reinhardt and that she was very troubled and she put herself in unsafe situations involving other men. He also testified that he had never spent the night at Susan's house and she had never invested any money with him. He also claimed that he was unaware that he was named beneficiary to her estate and on her insurance policies. But because he made so many false statements under oath, the police had enough to charge him based upon theft of the investment money. So in August of 1980, the police obtained a search warrant for Jay Smith's car, which had been returned to his brother. And when they searched the car, they found 
this green pin under the right front passenger seat. So they wanted to track down where this came from. And what they discovered is that Karen had taken a field trip to the Philadelphia Museum of Art in the spring of 1979 and that all the kids received this green pin the day they went. So at the time, Chris Pappas was also reaching out to the task force to basically share what he knew about the missing money. He implicated Wendy Ziegler in criminal activities since she kept the money hidden and had gotten rid of a gun and a silencer for Bill. He also told them of what Bill Bradfield had said to him about Jay Smith, and some of it tied into the evidence they had already collected. He also gave them documents he had gotten from both Bill and Sue Myers. One was a note in Bill's handwriting that detailed what should be addressed in the event there's a grand jury probe. So he was thinking ahead and specifically things they had to worry about. Chris gave this task force this note and it was just a small piece in the circumstantial case connecting Bill Bradfield with Jay Smith. But the next document he gave them would really cement that connection. And this was a note written by Jay Smith to Bill Bradfield two years earlier, around the same time Bill had that epiphany, you know, where, oh my gosh, Jay Smith didn't do it because we were at Ocean City, Maryland together. And this letter laid out what phones should be used to contact each other if necessary, and what they did the weekend they were supposed to be at the shore together, basically scripting their stories. The task force was able to lift fingerprints off the note, and what they found were fingerprints belonging to Chris Pappas, Bill Bradfield, and Jay Smith. So in February of 1980, police got a search warrant to seize material relevant to the case from the attic of the apartment building Bill, Sue, and Vince Valadis lived in. Now Sue was home, and she even helped them search and was becoming a little more open with police, telling them things she hadn't told them before. She told them about seeing a stack of $100 bills in the filing cabinet. She also told them that she had seen Susan Reinhardt's will with Bill named as beneficiary, and this was prior to Susan's death. Which again, he's been telling police and even testifying under oath that he had no idea that he was the beneficiary. He's a liar. Yeah. <laughs> so in May of 1981, Bill Bradfield was placed under arrest for theft by deception and theft of fraudulent conversion. Now, theft by conversion, I had to look that up because I'm like, well, what is that? So that occurs when a person lawfully obtains possession to the personal property or funds of another, but then converts that property or funds into their own use without the person's permission. So in August of 1981, a trial began in Media, Pennsylvania for William S. Bradfield. Jr. on these theft charges. Prior to the trial, Wendy Ziegler flew in from California and surrendered herself to authorities. She was released to her parents' custody after they posted $10,000 bail, and she agreed to become a witness for the state if all charges were dropped against her and she was granted immunity, which they did. So this three-day trial began, and Bill Bradfield, who hasn't really done that great on the stand, decided not to take the stand in his own defense. Probably a good move. The prosecutors had bankers testify about Susan's maneuvers of the $25,000 so she could get her hands on it so she could do this investment. Chris Pappas took the stand and told of being witness to about the $28,000 he saw in the trunk of Bill Bradfield's car. And he also told them about wiping down the money at Bill's insistence and hiding the money and then moving it to a safety deposit box. Sue Myers also took the stand and testified that since they moved in together in 1973, she had paid all the bills and that they did not have a savings account at the bank where the safety deposit box was open and held. But prosecutor's star witness was Wendy Ziegler. She took the stand and testified to taking the money from the safety deposit box 
and hiding it at her parents' house per Bill's request. Now, Bill did have people testify on his behalf, and one was his mother, and she testified that she had written out three checks over the years that totaled about $17,000. But when prosecutors cross-examined her, they got her to admit that that money had been repaid, and it no way, shape, or form could have been the money that was found that he had in the trunk of his car that he showed Chris Pappas. So the jury was out less than two hours and found Bill Bradfield guilty. Meanwhile, at a state prison in Dallas, Pennsylvania, an inmate by the name of Raymond Martre had contacted the state police. He claimed to be a friend of inmate Jay Smith, and he had something to share. He claimed that Jay Smith had told him that Bill Bradfield had asked him to help kill Susan Reinhardt because she knew that Bill Bradfield had perjured himself at his trial. When asked about what happened to the children, Jay Smith replied, quote, I took care of it. Unquote. On another occasion, he claimed that Jay got upset when discussing the Reinhardt case and he blurted out, sorry for the language, but, quote, I killed the fucking bitch, unquote. We might have to believe that. <laughs> Just I quoted it. It's not my words. It's his words. So in October of 1981, Jack Holtz was reviewing the files when he found a note about two guys from South Carolina who had been working at Three Mile Island and had seen the hatchback open and had called the police once they saw the news about the murder. Now, Jack nailed down that Reinhardt's body had been left at the host inn as early as 7 p.m. on Sunday evening, and he realized why Jay Smith made the call to his attorney's office around 8.37 p.m. that night when he was away from Harrisburg. When the cops had driven the route between Harrisburg and Jay Smith's house on Valley Forge Road, they found that it took approximately 90 minutes. So he's trying to basically set up an alibi to say, well, I couldn't have been in Harrisburg. I made a phone call from my home. Right. So in November of 1981, Bill Bradfield began serving a four-month jail sentence in Delaware County Prison. But after about one month in December of 81, he got released from jail on about $150,000 bail pending his repeal. So a fellow inmate who was at the Delaware County Prison by the name of Proctor Knoll. Best name ever. Proctor. It, it sounds like. A Victorian novel or like The Scarlet Letter. The Scarlet, yes. <laughs> so he met with police and agreed to speak to the grand jury to tell them what he knew. So on April 6, 1982, Bill Bradfield was arrested on three counts of conspiracy to commit murder with person or persons unknown. Bill was sent to Camp Hill State Correctional Institute outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for processing. So in October of 1983, William Bradfield Jr. went on trial for the second time, only this time for the more serious offenses against Susan Reinhardt, Karen Reinhardt, and Michael Reinhardt. This was a two-week trial, and Proctor Knoll took the stand and relayed conversations that he had had with Bill while they were in jail together. He testified that Bill told him that, and this is a quote, you know, if I wasn't in a financial bind, I would not be here, nor would any of this had happened to Susan. I was there when they were killed, but I didn't kill them. None of this was meant for the kids, only for Susan. But there couldn't be a stone left unturned. You have to tie up loose ends. Bill Bradfield took the stand in his own defense this time, and he testified that he never dated Susan Reinhardt, that their relationship, like all of his relationships, were not romantic, but more on an intellectual basis. He admitted to babysitting her children on one occasion, but he also testified that she never admitted to him dating Jay Smith and that he didn't know who killed her. Now, the defense did get all of Susan Reinhardt's friends to admit that Bill Bradfield never said they were romantically involved with Susan and never even hinted about getting married, although she had told them the exact opposite. So various law enforcement officials testified, but perhaps they said the saddest testimony came from Ken Reinhardt 
and his mother, the children's grandmother. Closing arguments, the defense hit hard on the fact that no one had ever seen Bill in any type of romantic relationship with Susan, and they attempted to downplay any forensic evidence. But when it was the prosecutor's time to get up in their closing arguments, he turned to the jury and he asked them, do you know why the body was exposed? Because this body is worth to one person in the world $7,000 per pound, and it had to be found during the alibi weekend so that he can say to the world, I couldn't have possibly done it. No one benefits from this unless the body is found except for the one person who is the sole beneficiary of Susan Reinhardt's estate and insurance policies. He ended with, today is October 28, 1983. Five years ago today, Susan Reinhardt's mother died and the plan to kill her began. And today the conspiracy ends and we are going to leave this to you. The jury was out for 75 minutes and came back with guilty. The recounts and he was sentenced to three life sentences to run consecutively. So in December of 1983, a prisoner by the name of Charles Montian, who was in the same prison as Jay Smith, wanted to talk to the task force. He shared with him that Jay Smith had talked to him about how to murder. He said that Jay Smith said, you shouldn't use drug injections to overdose your victims, and it's best to let the body lie around for a couple of days so that the blood could coagulate before you started cutting it up and disposing of the parts in different places. He said that the small parts fit nicely into drums or buckets, and you could weigh them down with pieces of chains before dumping them in rivers or lakes. I guess that's a how-to. So Jay Smith allegedly told Charles that nearly five years had passed, and in only two more years, Susan Reinhart would have been declared legally dead. And it was Bradfield's greed in needing her body to be found that caused all these problems. He was furious that Bill Bradfield was trying to set him up. He was furious that Bill Bradfield was trying to set him up, but he wasn't worried about Bill Bradfield making any deals with police because Bradfield didn't know where the children's bodies were. June 25th, <laughs> 1985, six years to the day after the murder, Jay Smith was transferred to Camp Hill State Correctional Institution to await a preliminary hearing where he was being charged with three counts of murder one. A search was done of Jay Smith's cell where they found a letter he had written to a private investigator named Russell Collins where he outlined his alibi on the murder weekend. The problem for Jay was that this letter totally contradicted what he had told the FBI in 1979. So on July 30th, 1985, Jay Smith's preliminary hearing took place and was found that there was sufficient evidence to bind him over for trial. And he was assigned a court-appointed attorney by the name of William Kostopoulos. In April of 1986, a few days before jury selection began, Jack Holtz found the connection between the circumstantial case between Jay Smith, Susan Reinhardt, and her children. When he was reviewing some files, he came across an interview of Elizabeth Ann Brooks in 1979. She was the granddaughter of the next door neighbor who was out in the yard picking up the hailstones when Karen and Michael were called into the house. She gave a description of the clothing that she had last seen the children wearing, but he asked her more specifically if she remembered seeing a green pen. She was never asked this before, and she said, yeah. She always wore that green pin, and she was wearing it the last time I saw her. So in courtroom number one of the Dauphin County Courthouse in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Judge William Lipsit presided. Rick Judea was the prosecutor for the state, and in his opening, he told the jury that this case was the most massive criminal investigation in the history of Pennsylvania to date. Kostopoulos opened with the statement that Jay Smith was targeted by a man who was very good at deception. He was made a target of exploitation by this man who was a master at it. 
The physical evidence was up first, and both sides got a lot in, and the trial seemed to be moving fairly quickly. And at one point, the prosecutor had reenacted the testimony from Bill Bradfield's trial with himself portraying Bill Bradfield and reading from the official transcript. It was also shared that Jay Smith had arrived late to a sentencing hearing and that his hair had been messed up, and that when he was feeling around in his pockets for a comb, there was none, so he ended up smoothing it down with his hands. So another piece of evidence that was brought in in testimony had to do with the tiny green pen that Karen had gotten from the Philadelphia Museum of Art and had been found under the seat of Jay Smith's car. Now, if you polled reporters at the time what they thought about the trial, they said that Jay Smith would be acquitted. They didn't believe the blue comb evidence and they thought that Bradfield or one of his disciples had planted it because this really was a circumstantial case. Mm -hmm. So on April 30th, 1986, the jury reached a verdict that morning after five hours of deliberation. The clerk took the forms from the jury foreman and said, in the case of the Commonwealth versus J.C. Smith, number 1677, the charge of murder, how do you find the defendant? He was found guilty on all three counts. The penalty phase quickly followed with the jury deliberating six more hours because they were either deliberating for a life sentence or death. The judge asked the jury if they'd reached the verdict, and the verdict was recorded into record on April 30th at 8.18 p.m., and the clerk said, ladies and gentlemen, will you stand, please? Hearken to your verdict as the court has recorded it. You say that J.C. Smith should receive death so say you all. The defense asked the jury to be polled, and each juror was required to utter the verdict in the murder of Susan Reinhardt, Karen Reinhardt, and Michael Reinhardt. Each member said the word death three times. Now that's a statement. <laughs> so you think that's the end of the story, right? That these men have been found guilty, they're being put away, one's life behind bars, one's death, but it wasn't. Now, in 1987, both the Reinhardt children were declared legally dead, and in 2002, Kenneth Reinhardt would pass away, never knowing the whereabouts of his children. In 1988, William Kostopoulos was working on Jay Smith's defense, and he discovered that prosecutors had withheld evidence supporting the defense claim that Jay Smith had been wrongly convicted. There was evidence found the last week of Jay Smith's trial, but it wasn't turned over to the defense until mid-1988. And what that evidence was were two adhesive strips that had taken evidence off of the bottom of Susan Reinhardt's bare feet. And these strips had quartz particles on them that are found in sand. That finding of sand clears his client as it only implicates Bill Bradfield because he was in Cape May, New Jersey that weekend at the shore. Jay Smith was already granted a new trial in December 1989 by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, stating the judge had erred in allowing the jury to consider hearsay testimony. You remember the prosecutor portrayed Bill Bradfield and read from the transcript. Right. So William Kostopoulos asked the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to attach double jeopardy. Once more evidence was discovered in a box a flea market dealer had taken from the attic of Jack Holtz, one of the lead investigators. Jack had hired him to clean out his attic. So in this box were found, I guess, a letter Joseph Wambaugh had written to the investigators saying that he would pay them $50,000 for their story and what happened through the investigation, but only if Jay Smith was found guilty. They also found an identical blue comb in there. In 1992, in a 5-0 to decision, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court freed Jay Smith and attached double jeopardy. The court said that the prosecutorial wrongdoing was so egregious that retrying him would violate his constitutional protections against double jeopardy. So he was freed 
never to be tried again for those murders. In 1998, William Bradfield died in prison of a heart attack. In his cell was found a photograph of what looked to be a small statue sitting on the ground with overgrowth around it. Now, people speculated that this may be where the children were buried, but we'll never know. He never told anyone what it was. There was no writing on the photograph. I think people have tried to search for it, but have never found it. And if you want to see the photo, you can check out the Charlie Project website under Karen or Michael Reinhardt. They do have a photograph of that. And we can post it on our social as well. When Jay Smith got out of jail, he was a bitter man and he filed civil rights lawsuits left and right, but none of them went anywhere. They were all rejected. And he did end up dying in 2009 at the age of 80 from heart disease. So there were a couple of theories around and one of them was that Bradfield had set Smith up for the murders because why would Smith, clearly an intelligent man, really be that sloppy to have left Karen's pen under the seat of his car, leave a comb with his Air Force Reserve unit under Susan's body and would he drop the body off in the city he has to go to report for sentencing? Like all of that's really sloppy. Now there was a second theory and that's the one I suspect to is that they did work together, but Bradfield double-crossed him by telling the friends that Smith was planning on killing Susan for a year and planning the evidence that pointed the police to Jay Smith. So there are a couple of resources out there I mentioned too at the beginning of the podcast. That is Echoes in the Darkness by Joseph Wamba and also the 1987 CBS miniseries by the same name. Now there also is another resource out there, another book written on the case, and that was Engaged to Murder, the Inside Story to the mainline murders by Loretta Swartz Noble. What makes this book a little different is that she actually interviews Bill Bradfield for this. And she described and what she writes about him is that Bradfield displays a seductive pervasiveness of a psychopath. But she describes Jay Smith as a sociopath. I'm not sure there's a difference between the two. And that is that all psychopaths are sociopaths. But sociopaths are not necessarily psychopaths. So when you look up some traits of what a psychopath is, they're someone that lacks guilt or remorse, lacks empathy, lacks a deep emotional attachments, narcissism, superficial charm, dishonesty, manipulativeness, and reckless risk-taking. So what they think is that sociopaths have a less severe form of lack of empathy and guilt, and they may actually be able to form some bonds, like with family members, where a psychopath cannot. So I don't agree with her that one's a psychopath and one's a sociopath. I think they're both psychopaths. But what I will agree to is what she wrote at the end of her book. So tragic on so many levels that it can never be fully comprehended. Your thoughts? It's just, it's so disgusting because it, I mean, and yes, it's because they are, you know, socio or psychopaths, but the fact that they have no, not even moral, just emotional connection to these people. Like he knew Susan Reinert for years. He knew these kids. And if they were 10 or 11 when this happened, he's known them since they were like little and seen them grow up and has been participating in their lives and then does all of this just for financial gain. And I agree with you. I think that it was the two of them working together and Bill manipulating Jay Smith and then setting him up for it at the same time. Because honestly, I don't think that Bill had the balls to do this on his own. No. And when you look at the other things, like when, you know, was in the parking lot and had the tranquilizers and things like that, like I think that Jay Smith would be much more ready to actually commit the murders and have a lot less emotional connection and sort of things holding him back from doing that. I think that he is just a crazy... Psychopath. Yeah, psychopath. And that Bill is more 
more just, well, I'm willing to do it, but I'm not going to get my hands dirty. And that's sort of how he right. lives his life. It's, like it's, the mastermind. The mastermind, right. Mm-hmm. Is I'm going to get what I can out of this, but I'm not going to get my hands dirty. And his automatic assumption. And you can see like that narcissistic behavior in all of his interactions with the police too and thinking well you guys can't get me for this because I didn't actually commit the murders and he thinks that that's what's going to get him off right and they're going to believe everything he says right so I believe that the murders would have never happened if not for Bill Bradfield's greed and I think the thing with me with this story that I had the hardest time and still have a hard time wrapping my head around is how no one out of all these people eight to ten people who knew that Bill Bradfield was telling them that Jay Smith was going to kill her repeatedly, not a one-off, repeatedly telling them this, that no one said a word to her. No one let her know. I don't know if she would have believed them or not, but they didn't even bother telling her. And even if they didn't want to go to her and tell her, you could have anonymously called the tip into police because you dropped Jay Smith's name They know who he is Mm -hmm. because he's already going away for robbery and all this strange stuff they found in his basement. So here's a criminal discourse life tip. Another one. I think we gave one (laughs) earlier. Here's the second one. If someone tells you they know that someone's planning to kill someone else, don't sit on that information. Tell someone. Yes. Tell the victim, the potential victim, or the police. So thank you all so much for listening to our first case here on Criminal Discourse. Please subscribe and rate us. We're going to be on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also reach out to us on social. So we're on Facebook, Twitter. We'll have all of that in our notes here in our episode notes. And, you know, please let us know how we're doing. Any constructive criticism we're very open to. Anything that's not constructive, we won't read. So, <laughs> And it'll hurt us. <laughs> and it will hurt us. So please subscribe. Please download episodes and stay tuned because next week, I believe we're dropping two yes. new episodes. Doubling we're, up. We're on fire. All right, everybody. Take care. Be safe. But also remember to be kind.